I continue to view the digitization of money as a key theme for the 2020s decade and beyond, both in bottom-up ways like bitcoins and in top-down ways like central bank digital currencies. Hello and welcome back to Ethereum Audible Ethereum In-Depth, where I read the best in the Web3 and Ethereum ecosystem. I'm Yehoshua Zlatogorsky, and thank you for joining me today on our last read of Lynn Alden's The Lightning Network. It's been a massive read. If you have not started with part ones and part two, I highly recommend you scroll back in your podcast feed and find them because we are starting on part three which is really in the thick of things. So that's where you should head to start the read. I'm going to summarize the first two in any event, just to give you a little brief reminder of what we've been talking about. I chose to dive into Lynn Alden's take on Lightning because A, Lightning is a fantastic piece of technology that is a really great example of what Web3 brings to the table and crypto in general. It's built on Bitcoin not on Ethereum or anything else. And it is really the best implementation of micropayments that I've seen in the crypto ecosystem. It's very, very, very cool. I use it myself. Uh, And so I thought an exploration of it, an in-depth exploration of it, was really worthy of a read. And Lynn Alden just does a great job with a thorough, in-depth take on it. And so even though it's a super long read, I really thought it was worth the time to do it. And that's why we are going to do part three today. Now, a brief reminder is that in part one, Lynn lays out the reason for why Lightning is built on Bitcoin and why you need to start micropayments or more appropriately, a transfer of value layer a payments layer only on a store of value layer. So first you need to have a store of value, then you can have a transaction layer on top of it. Because without having a store of value, well, no one wants to use it to pay. No one wants to use it for microtransactions. No one wants to use it for transactions in general. And so a store of value is the first thing that is necessary for a means of transaction layer to be built on it. And that's why a lot of other forks that tried to forks of bitcoin that is that try to implement uh, transaction first scaling transactions before having a store of value failed and lynn points out to lightning uh, not lightning sorry litecoin and to bitcoin satoshi vision and bitcoin cash basically the the main forks of bitcoin and how they try to sacrifice store of value which is basically sacrificing decentralization for having more transactions and more throughput. And the only way to get the throughput is really by having a first core layer that is a store of value for the long term, and that is done by decentralization. And decentralization in the Bitcoin sense means maximum decentralization, having the most nodes being able to run and verify the entire blockchain. And only once you have that can you start to scale. Now, the way to scale isn't by increasing transactions on the base layer, because that would sacrifice decentralization. It's by adding a layer. And this part of the thesis is very similar to Ethereum's roll-up-centric 
thesis, and it's basically we want to use layers to scale the blockchain. We want to have a modular blockchain, Bitcoin being the core layer, and then on top of that, we want to have layers of payments. And that is what Lightning is. And in part two, we dove into what Lightning is, and it's really, this Lynn uses a great analogy, which is you go to a bar and you open a tab. And so if I go into a bar and I don't want to pay for every beer, I just say, hey, barman, open the tab for me and I will pay you at the end of the night. And that is what a Lightning channel is. You send a transaction to the Bitcoin base layer and you say, open up a tab of one Bitcoin with Alice. And then you and Alice have a running tab. And as long as you don't pass that one Bitcoin uh, amount that you set up front, you can just keep on that tab for as long as you want without transactions to the main chain. Kind of like when you're at the bar, every beer is just on a tab. You don't have to fork over the money. And then at the end of the evening, you close out that tab. You settle the payment. And what's unique about this is that this isn't debt. This isn't a promise to pay that is contingent on debt. It's actually a, a prepayment. You are prefunding the payment channel when you're opening it. And what's great about Lightning is that it really is a network. That's why it's called the Lightning Network. One channel, you don't have to open a channel with everyone. You can have channels that reach people that you are not connected to directly as long as the network of nodes is connected to them. So this is kind of different from Facebook where it's just your friends, but actually if a friend is a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, then you can send a payment to that person through all of those different nodes in the network. And so there is a network effect and there is a scale economy effect where the more liquidity and the more channels that are open is increasing the value of the network. So that is a, an overview of why Lightning is built as it is in layers on Bitcoin and the, the kind of the overall structure of it is. And so in today's part three, we're going to be diving into critiques of the Lightning Network and wrapping up this read. Uh, before that, I want to give a big shout out to Alp Audio. That's A-L-P-E Audio. It's if you want to learn in depth, if you want to learn on the go, if you want to master a topic from A to Z, but you don't have time to sit in front of your computer and read a lot of articles and take a course because, come on, who's kidding? Who's got time to sit in front of a screen when we've got to be working or doing other stuff? Well, Alp Audio is the place for you. It's basically in-depth courses, but they're audio courses with summaries, flashcards, built for memory retention, basically everything you might want to know and learn on the go. Got courses on product management, mindfulness, Shakespeare, philosophy, an introduction to venture capital, how to build an audience on Twitter, all kinds of different things. So go over and check that out. If you're also interested, I just launched an email course on tokenomics, how to evaluate tokens in Web3. Uh, you can find all of that at designingtokenomics.com. It's a free email course. You can sign up and just start reading. My goal with this course is to educate both builders and uh, buyers of tokens about how to evaluate a token project. And it starts with when the hell you need a token and when you don't. Spoiler, most projects don't need tokens or shouldn't have a token. Um, and so when you want to have a token and when you do need a token, how you want to think about the supply and demand dynamics, vesting, insider distributions, inflation, issuance rate, 
and governance, all kinds of different things that go into tokenomics. So you can head over to designingtokenomics.com. And without further ado, let's dive into Lynn Alden Lightning Network. Let's start with Lightning Network Critiques. Lightning has faced a number of criticisms, mainly from proponents of other blockchains. For many of them, the success of Lightning Network could imply the irrelevance of their own project. There is still a ton of development work to do on the Lightning Network, and so some criticisms are fair, and the network does have limitations. The network is on its fifth year in operational terms, with only the past two years really being a critical mass of highly usable liquidity. But after years of research into the space, I view Lightning as very promising, and generally underestimated. It requires looking out for the next several years to really see the potential. So here are my responses to some of the common criticisms of the network that I've seen. Criticism number one, it's small and trivial. The Lightning Network is growing quickly, but still has under 5,000 Bitcoins on it in public channels. Depending on Bitcoin's price at a given time, that represents only hundreds of millions of dollars at most. Due to high velocity, quite a lot of transaction volume is being done relative to that tiny amount, but ultimately, it's tiny compared to the global payments industry. Arcane Research published a great analysis of the Lightning Network's current scale back in April of 2020, too, and they show a year-over-year compounding growth rate of 410%, but naturally that's off a tiny, 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 tiny base, and this chart basically peaks in usage in Q4 of 2021 at around $35 million of payment volume in USD, and then it goes back to around $20 million in payment volume, so peak of 35 and as of April 2022, $20 million in monthly payments. The small size is often compared by detractors to various DeFi applications. For example, wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum has over 230,000 Bitcoins custodially. Lightning therefore looks very small, outmatched, and even trivial by comparison. However, that comparison is a category error. The overall market for actual crypto medium of exchange payments in Bitcoin or otherwise is still very small. Widespread use of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange should not be expected until later in its monetization process, as discussed earlier especially in developed markets where every transaction is a taxable event and people have access to much more established payment systems. DeFi, on the other hand, is mainly used for trading and leveraging. Many of these various blockchains and DeFi protocols have strong crypto VC incentives to issue a coin, market it, and pump up the price and exposure, and then get fast exit liquidity on retail investors. Chainalysis found back in that DeFi is mainly used by institutional-sized traders. It makes more sense to compare the amount of wrapped Bitcoin, which is held by a centralized custodian, to the amount of Bitcoin on centralized exchanges. There are more Bitcoins wrapped on Ethereum DeFi than there are on either Kraken or Gemini, for example, but less than there are on Coinbase or Binance or Bitfinex. That's a more appropriate comparison. Ethereum is basically the fourth largest Bitcoin exchange and leveraging service, and trading plus leveraging is a much larger Bitcoin market than Bitcoin merchants' payments at this time. Lightning, on the other hand, has no separate coin. Nobody is getting super rich quickly off of Lightning. There is no huge set of marketing incentives to get people on Lightning. It's a rather boring payments network, frankly. It has very low speculation to utility ratio, meaning that it's almost all utility. I personally consider it to be rather exciting, but that's because of the utility that it offers the elegant way in which it works. Additionally, Lightning developers purposely limited payment and channel sizes in the early years to reduce the potential for people to lose significant amounts of money from potential bugs or exploits in its nascent state. 
The goal of developers was never to grow quickly at all costs. The goal since the beginning was to build responsibly for the long run. Lightning's growth, including through a bear market, it is mainly due to organic utility and the need for it, rather than primarily for speculation, trading, leveraging, or for any sort of pump-and-dump VC-funded incentivization scheme that relies on using retail investors as, equit, as, as exit liquidity. There could be some catalysts such as Taro that end up accelerating the network's growth at some point, but either way, it's a growing network that is there for people who want to transact using the Bitcoin network. Criticism 2. It's too centralized. The Lightning Network can be challenging to use at a deep level, especially if you're intending to be a high-volume routing node. Your node has to be on all the time, you tie up a lot of capital, and it can be tricky to balance your liquidity. As a result, the network naturally developed many super nodes that serve as hubs for network traffic, since they have significant capital and spend a lot of time building and maintaining liquid channels. Some people refer to this as a hub-and-spoke model, which is not quite true in this context. This seeming centralization is often used as a criticism for Lightning, but that criticism is misplaced. For a hypothetical example, suppose you only have one or two fiber-optic fiber internet service providers in your area, and that those two companies are the only possible ways that you can access the internet. That's a major centralization problem. You're completely at the whim of those one or two companies to let you use the internet, and you have no recourse otherwise unless you move. You're limited to the one or two hubs that serve your area in a monopoly or duopoly fashion. Now, instead, suppose hypothetically that there are hundreds or thousands of different satellite-based internet providers that you could choose to use. In this thought experiment, they each can connect you to the global internet wherever you are in the world via a fleet of orbiting satellites. This removes any sort of centralization problem. You can pick any of them from around the world, and they are nearly countless in number. You're not limited to a specific hub linked to your location. You can pick from the entire global set of hubs, and you can even pick more than one hub simultaneously for additional redundancy. In the Lightning Network, there are all sorts of supernodes that can connect with for routing liquidity, and they are based in various jurisdictions or can operate privately. Since it's all software, it scales rather significantly. Additionally, you can avoid directly connecting with any of the super nodes if you don't want to, and instead connect directly peer-to-peer -peer with other small nodes, including internationally, who are themselves connected to any number of other peer nodes or super nodes. There are online groups, such as Plebnet, with 6,000 plus members that focus on building channels with each other and supporting each other. This is what makes it not really a hub-and-spoke model, even if there are many particularly well-connected super nodes throughout the system. Importantly, Entities in Lightning are not enforcing the immutability of the money supply or enforcing other consensus rules. They're merely routing individual payments. If certain supernodes are perceived as problematic in terms of privacy or in terms of censoring transactions, users can build channels around them. John Gilmore's well-known quote, the net interprets censorship as damage and routes around it, applies here. The optionality is the key to decentralization. The Lightning Network involves an evolving set of nodes and channels, with old channels being removed and new channels being built as needed by its various participants. Market forces dictate where the liquidity goes. And here in the article, there are two images, super cool images, of the state of the internet in 2005 and the state of the Lightning Network. And Lynn is kind of showing the comparisons of that in the internet of 2005, there are lots of 
super nodes that connect to other nodes. And it's just a, a pretty beautiful image, actually, of uh, imagine kind of neurons connecting with all kinds of other neurons and cells um, and lots of different interconnecting bridges. And that is the Lightning Network's map as well, that even though there are lots of super nodes, there are also lots of interconnecting paths between different nodes. Alexander Leishman recently described it well, quote, The Lightning Network has no shared global state, which is one of the reasons it is by far the most robust and censorship-resistant layer 2. In fact, there is no singular Lightning Network. There are many private Lightning Network nodes and subnets you can't see. End quote. Criticism number three. It's easy to replicate. Lightning need not be unique to Bitcoin, much like how the Bitcoin network can incorporate potentially useful technology that is developed on other blockchains, certain other blockchains can potentially incorporate Lightning-like technology on their stack. In fact, some Lightning-like networks do exist on some other blockchains, but they are tiny compared to what exists on the Bitcoin network. This is because, as previously described, Lightning relies on liquidity. Liquidity, in the form of a large number of well-funded channels is one of the key limitations for it to work smoothly. When the network was first launched on the Bitcoin network, it wasn't highly usable. There were very few nodes and channels, and it was hard to find a payment route to send payments through or to get inbound liquidity so that other people can send payments to you. A lot of payments would fail and need to be reattempted. It was a work in progress, basically an alpha development. However, it gradually built up more and more channels for years, which made it increasingly reliable to send and receive payments. Liquidity is a major network effect variable. It's why certain stocks and commodity exchanges remain the primary stock and commodity exchanges for decades or even centuries. People go to where liquidity is, and that creates more liquidity, which brings more people, and that creates more liquidity. Lightning has a self-reinforcing network effect that is extremely hard to replicate, and it's growing month by month. This is why I consider the Lightning Network to be like one of those mile-long freight trains. It's hard to get it started and to accelerate it, but once it's going, its momentum is huge. The Lightning Network took years of channel building and cautious development to reach a critical mass of liquidity and true usability, and it did so in large part because it was built on Bitcoin, which has the biggest combination of liquidity, scale, and decentralization of any cryptocurrency. Lightning is a network effect built on top of a network effect, and both reinforce each other. Criticism number four. It's not private enough. The Lightning Network generally offers better privacy than the Bitcoin base layer, especially for the sender, but it's not a perfectly private network. As previously mentioned, the network makes use of onion routing so that each node along the payment path only knows the directions that apply to them rather than the full set of directions for where the payment originated and where its final destination is. It's a series of directions, but each participant only has a small subset of the total directions. An entity that is trying to spy on transactions can set up multiple lightning nodes all around the network and serve as a payment router. Usually, an individual node doesn't know the original source of a destination of a payment, only the node where it came from and where they are sending it to. However, if an entity has enough nodes across the network, they might be able to get a good idea of where certain payments are coming from and going to. So not every payment absolutely guarantees perfectly privacy, although the sender usually has good privacy in practice. Knowledgeable users have significant ways to maximize their privacy, both on the Bitcoin's network base layer and on the Lightning network, but these do take some know-how. There is still development happening in this early stage of the network to expand privacy 
options for users and to make privacy more neutral. This includes specific developments to make it harder for surveillance nodes to gain useful information about payments and specific developments to increase the privacy of the recipient. The Human Rights Foundation has a Bitcoin development fund that, among other things, provides financing for various privacy developments. With the recent OFAC sanctions on the Tornado Cash privacy tool on Ethereum, there has been an increase in industry awareness around privacy and its implications versus various policymakers that would refer to limit privacy wherever possible. The 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act included new reporting requirements for digital asset brokers, which is broad enough to potentially include lightning nodes. This is a complex legal issue because Lightning Node operators can and often do route payments without knowing the source or destination of the payments, similar to how internet routers don't know the contents of the encrypted bits they are routing. Similar to what occurred in the 1990s with the dawn of the consumer internet and end-to-end encryption, there could be a growing friction in the 2020s between anti-privacy regulators and innovative new technologies that make privacy increasingly possible. Criticism number five, we have other payment solutions. Most people living in the US or Europe or Japan do not have problems making payments or getting bank accounts on a regular basis. They may wonder why Lightning is relevant at all. However, a significant portion of the world is unbanked. While a free open source software app that makes use of the Lightning Network can give them payments capability, a large portion of the developing world suffers from persistent double digit inflation. And most people in developing countries have experienced major currency devaluations and resets in their lifetimes, which eradicates savings. Additionally, approximately half the world lives in countries that are classified as authoritarian or semi-authoritarian. They face arbitrary bank account freezes for basic things like protesting or speaking too freely. Technology like the Bitcoin and Lightning stack is an asymmetric technology for them. Even in relatively free countries, Individual people, companies, or industries can be deplatformed from the common payments network, despite not doing anything illegal. The Bitcoin Lightning stack is therefore a backup option, open to all. When imagining the potential addressable market of the Lightning network or similar solutions, we need to think globally, rather than just about our own comfortable lives. People who suffer from high inflation, corrupt banking systems, deplatforming, and other monetary problems are the more natural prospective users of peer-to-peer money that can be debased or frozen by a centralized third party. They're more likely to get on the Bitcoin Lightning Network compared to any given person in a developed country. Sure, some bad actors can make use of that technology as well, but that's like saying that bad actors can make use of the internet. Of course they can. It's an open set of protocols. Any powerful piece of technology can be used by good or bad people. However, the number of people that need improvements in this area for legitimate purposes is orders of magnitude larger in number than prospective criminals. It's not shocking, then, that 19 out of 20 of Chainalysis's top countries by cryptocurrency adoption are developing countries. In many of these countries, there is a much higher penetration of smartphones than bank accounts. And these countries are, and I'll just rattle them off, so we've got... Vietnam in number one, India, Pakistan, Ukraine, Kenya, Nigeria, Venezuela, United States in eighth, Togo, Argentina, Colombia, Thailand, China, Brazil, Philippines, South Africa, Ghana, the Russian Federation, Tanzania, and Afghanistan in 20th place. Even in developed countries, Lightning can make payments cheaper and can be used for micropayments or machine-to-machine payments more seamlessly than the current fiat payments methods can. Criticism 6. 
it has a scaling ceiling for self-custodial users. Lightning greatly increases the transaction volume that is possible on the Bitcoin network. However, opening and closing a Lightning channel still requires an on-chain transaction, which means that in its current form, the Bitcoin Lightning stack still can't scale to billions of people using it self-custodially. Specifically, there are block space limits to how many people can use it fully self-custodially on a regular basis, unless certain base layer forks allow for more throughput. For any network, there are inescapable technical trade-offs. To ensure the widespread auditability and immutability of the base layer, there are some constraints that are hard to overcome. I view many other blockchain designers as trying to over-engineer their systems. Any solution needs to have product market fit. Not everybody wants a fully self-custodial experience. Some people want the convenience of using a custodial service of some sort. Bitcoin and Lightning gives optionality to people around the world, but people can see fit to use whichever portion of the stack that they want. To quantify it, the Bitcoin Lightning stack can be semi-regularly used by tens of millions of people self-custodially. Custodial services can scale that to higher numbers. For example, all of the tens of millions of accounts on Cash App technically have access to the Lightning Network through nodes and channels operated by Cash App. The same is true for people on Strike, Rigover, and similar types of apps. At the current time, the Bitcoin network is being criticized by some opponents for low fees and thus supposedly low long-term censorship resistance as the block subsidy winds down, meaning there's not overwhelming demand for its block space at the current time, which if that state were to persist indefinitely could eventually result in a low cost to control over half of the mining share. While it is simultaneously being criticized for not being able to scale self-custodially to everyone in the world, meaning its block space is not nearly big enough to fulfill such enormous potential demands, these are mostly mutually exclusive concerns. If the combination of the Bitcoin and Lightning stack eventually reaches severe growing pains against the number of people that want to interact with it fully self-custodially, which is a good thing, then there are additional areas of development that can increase its scaling potential via ways to allow more users to share a given channel, which are beyond the technical scope of this article. On the other hand, if the network doesn't grow much and its block space does not increase in value, a bad thing, then its scaling limitations are a non-issue. At the current time, the Bitcoin and Lightning stack provides tremendous scaling potential compared to the number of people that currently use the network. The network doesn't need to overbuild for market conditions that don't exist yet. Although, of course, it's good for developers to be thinking about long-term scaling options. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. And if or when the network encounters persistently high base layer fees, tons of base layer transactions being used to open lightning channels and an inability to onboard all of the users that want to onboard to the network self-custodially, then that would spark more interest in developing further scaling solutions, including the possibility of new broad consensus soft forks and other changes. Concluding thoughts. For thousands of years, commerce and money moved at the same speed. The speed of foot, horses, and ships, people's ability to do transactions, and the bare assets they transacted with, mainly gold and silver, had no inherent difference in terms of speed. With the invention of the telegraph, and then the telephone and undersea cables throughout the 1800s, the speed of commerce increasing, increased to nearly the speed of light. People could transact across continents by updating each other's bank ledgers over telecommunication systems. However, gold and silver as bearer assets still moved slowly, and thus had to increasingly abstract in order to keep up. Prior to this, gold and silver were already 
sometimes abstracted with paper claims due to divisibility limitations, but once telecommunication technology arrived, their slow speed made it even more necessary to abstract them. Eventually, governments dropped gold and silver backing from their bank ledger and physical paper abstractions entirely. Basically, the difference in speed between commerce and bearer asset money gave governments a huge opportunity for custodial arbitrage. The invention of the Bitcoin network, and especially the Lightning network that makes use of it, however, recreated a way for bearer assets to move at the speed of telecommunications, just like commerce does. People now have the option to store and send liquid value globally peer-to-peer -peer without relying on claims or IOUs, by instead relying on the decentralized code-enforced rules that immediately put the funds in the custody of the recipient. The Bitcoin Lightning Stack is a decentralized ledger that also has peer-to-peer -peer payment channels interwoven on top of it. It's programmable money in a decentralized cloud, connected to the real world via its proof-of-work consensus. It's hard to say exactly where this leads. Peer-to-peer -peer global transfers of liquid value is a Pandora's box that has now been opened. Certain governments do not want it open and pass various laws against it. But here it is, with free open source software. It's much harder for governments to enforce payment rules on millions of individual persons than on just thousands of highly regulated banking institutions. If people don't need to go through banks to transact inside or outside of their local area, that opens a new set of possibilities. There's a race now between public and private developers. On one hand, things like Bitcoin and Lightning Stack are racing ahead with stateless monetary assets and cheap and instant payment channels. Since it's open source, developers around the world can work on various parts of it to any extent they want. Combined with how finite of an asset Bitcoins are, this is leading to substantial adoption and development even as the price fluctuates wildly based on leverage and big investors and all sorts of reasons. Individuals, startups, and even some large corporations contribute development efforts to it. On the other hand, governments are working towards central bank digital currencies. Some of them, like China, got a head start and already have implementations in the field. Most other governments, however, are way behind and are only in the research phase for how they might want to go about constructing a digital currency. While governments are slower than the open source private sector and have a less attractive set of incentives, maintaining an inflationary system, maintaining seniorage with the system, enhancing surveillance and control capabilities on the users of the system and so forth, they do have the power of taxation and regulation over their open source private sector competition. However, this power of taxation and regulation is limited by their rule of law the will of the people, and their desire to encourage innovation-focused businesses to remain in their jurisdiction rather than go elsewhere in the global marketplace. At the end of the day, blockchains are information. Users are merely updating an open-source distributed public ledger amongst themselves and can simply memorize a 12-word seed phrase to interact with it. To outright ban the individual use of open-source blockchain software is basically to ban a form of speech and information. This is somewhat possible in authoritarian regimes, but is more challenging to do in a country with property rights and freedom of speech and expression with democratic representation. Governments have to get rather authoritarian if they want to nearly completely deter the use of such open and decentralized technology and then maintain that deterrence perpetually. Instead, 
the main ways that policymakers can control the industry are via on-ramps, taxation, and regulation. They can block fiat bank connections to digital asset exchanges or regulate their usage with strict KYC and AML compliance checks in and out of large digital asset exchanges combined with blockchain surveillance to track addresses. They can make it hard to serve us as custodian for digital assets or make it hard for users to withdraw coins from custodians. There are ways around this, but all of these are frictions and control points for large pools of capital. In problematic jurisdictions like Turkey, with massive inflation, or Russia, with authoritarianism, they are more prone to say that it's illegal for merchants to accept Bitcoin or other digital assets as payments for goods and services and force people to try to use their fiat currency instead. But to the extent that they can even enforce such rules, they do so at the risk of cutting off their population from the rest of the world, using ever stronger means of controlling information and open source software, and deterring innovation from happening within their jurisdiction. In a number of countries with a failing currency, it is illegal to have and use cash dollars, and yet cash dollars are often accepted by merchants anyway. It's very hard to enforce a cash dollar ban when people have trouble using the local currency due to high inflation or transaction censorship. Similarly, it's rather hard to enforce a perpetual ban on open source software and peer-to-peer digital transactions. The number of enforcements points is huge, and developers keep adapting to it to make it easier and more private to use. I continue to view the digitization of money as a key theme for the 2020s decade and beyond, both in bottom-up ways like bitcoins and in top-down ways like central bank digital currencies, and am interested to see the direction that it goes in. The Bitcoin Lightning stack in particular continues to be very promising as a monetary network in my view with ongoing signs of user adoption and development, along with high levels of decentralization. It's not without risks and challenges, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Whew. All right. And that brings us to a wrap on Lynn Alden's A Look at the Lightning Network. I'm going to take a sip of my tea here. Ah, all right. Now we can dive in because while I was reading all three parts of these, I had a bunch of different thoughts that I wanted to go into. And I'm going to not focus this on Bitcoin versus Ethereum, proof of work, proof of stake. I'm actually going to try and steer clear of that because I think the more interesting points around Lightning in general are the, the first principles that it brings to the fore. So the first point that I want to dive into is the design mindset of the developers of Lightning, which I love. Lightning is a public good. It's not a company. It's not a project. It's, it's, it is a project. It's not a DAO. It's not a token. It is really an open protocol that is a public good, which is amazing in my mind. I think there is so much to learn from developing public goods, and how much they contribute to society as a whole, because there isn't the misalignment of incentives that a lot of Web3 projects have built in when they're funded and have to return money to investors, and there's a token involved or not a token involved, they have to be profit-seeking. No, there's a lot to be said for protocols that are public goods that win out on the base of their merits, 
and receive public adoption over time, really based on how they've been built and who's building them. And, you know, the cockroach test of sticking it through, right? Lightning has been around for five years, and only now it's starting to pick up. And that is the huge plus and, and positive of building a public good, right? Where there, there really is an alignment of long-term incentives, which is very, very healthy for a project. There's no pump and dump. And I think there's a lot to learn from that in any blockchain ecosystem, in any ecosystem in general, which is how do we fund public goods? How do we think about funding them properly and getting the incentives aligned for the long term? And in the case of Lightning, it's it's a great case study of, of funding public goods. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for the entire journey, but... I think in my book, it's a big success. And it's interesting. I haven't I haven't done the homework to see really kind of the, the genesis journey of Lightning and how it was formed and who worked on it for the past five years. I know there are some startups that have received a lot of funding. Um, I'm kind of curious about that just in terms of the business models behind that. But in general, public goods, I think, are really healthy for the blockchain ecosystem. And it's no small uh, feat in my mind that uh, the public goods often get the most tra- traction, whether it's Lightning or it's Uniswap, uh, Uniswap V2, which is immutable and really a public good. It's a smart contract that is that lives on chain. Um, and, and that trust that comes, the brand, the immutability that comes with that public good is leads to a lot of adoption. And Actually, I've written an entire post on how to build a moat in crypto and Web3, and this mindset is part of that roadmap. So that's number one that I really wanted to start out with and call out, because when we're building projects, that's really how we should be thinking about them. And sometimes in in Web3, that sucks, because there is no business model, and it really should be a public good. That's the idea of having a global decentralized ledger, is that anyone can access it, um, and kind of use it like HTTP, like SMTP. Now, that being said, the the big innovation of Web3 is adding a financial layer to a protocol. And just like I was kind of lauding the good side of this for Lightning, I'm going to attack it for a second, which is it's taken five years to reach a very low amount of volume. And it could have reached a much higher amount of volume and more adoption by adding that incentive layer of financialization. Now, I think, you know, I think a lot of projects do this in the wrong way, but there is a right way to do it, right? Bitcoin in a lot of ways, Ethereum as well, have has added financialization to the core protocol layer in a way that has given it adoption. And that is the innovation of crypto. It adds a monetary incentive to a distributed system that aligns the network to act in the best interest of it. And that is missing in the case of Lightning, which means that the moat it has is is less and adoption is much slower. That's part of the moat because Lynn Alden is 100% right that liquidity begets liquidity in a kind of network like that. And if Lightning manages to reach a huge, huge amount of liquidity, then that's a moat in it of itself. But I think we're missing out on something when we're building something in Web3 And we don't think about maybe there is a way to add in the financial layer that will increase adoption and to do it conservatively, to do it wisely. But that's something that could be worth considering. So 
Another thing I really liked about the development was how they rolled it out slowly and made a cap on funds, which again, very smart. I've seen this in another project that I'm a fan of, which is called Thorchain, which is basically a cross-chain blockchain, which lets you trade uh, swap between currencies natively. So you can swap your native Bitcoin into native Ethereum, and they have a blockchain, it's a proof of stake blockchain that manages that. So it's not wrapped. There's no risk of a bridge. It's just a blockchain. That's very cool. Um, And since launch until I think around a month ago, they limited the funds that the Thorchain could swap because of bugs, because it was a beta. And I thought that was really, really responsible and, and worth commending from a team. And I think more teams should do that. The amount of hacks that are out there in the blockchain ecosystem is absolutely ridiculous and fraudulent and should be stopped or at least the amounts should be lower. So that's another thing that I thought was worth calling out. Now, I'm in complete agreement with uh, with Lynn Alden on most of the points in her article where you need first a store of value before you develop a medium of exchange. I agree. Uh, I agree that having a peer-to-peer network of nodes is safer, less censorable, more private, and Lightning really scores highly on all of those metrics, so much so that I would like to see that kind of uh, channel network built on Ethereum. I'm a big fan of the peer-to-peer model. I'm a big fan of the opening a channel and then not paying gas, which I think would be really beneficial for Ethereum, and especially... You know, I know we're focusing on a roll-up centric map, but I think that a lightning network structure on top of Ethereum makes a lot, a lot of sense, would remove a lot of transactions, and there's really no reason to put them on roll-ups, which are also already split up in terms of liquidity. But it makes sense to have when you're trying to do peer-to-peer transactions to have this kind of network built in. It fractures liquidity slightly for sure especially if you're trying to add in DeFi apps. DApps would not work with kind of a lightning network channel state, but I think I still think it's really worthwhile. It's a shame that it hasn't been built on because I really like the architecture of it. It's very elegant. It's very neat. And I think there's a lot to be learned for other ecosystems and not only Bitcoin. One of the things that I do disagree on is really well, I agree, and I, I, I'm just surprised by it. Liquidity does beget liquidity. And in that sense, Lynn is 100% right. What boggles my mind is there's no addressing of really the biggest liquidity black hole in the ecosystem, which is the Ethereum ecosystem, right? If liquidity begets liquidity and people are trading, building, financing things, it's all happening on liquidity. None of this is happening in Bitcoin, None of this is happening on Lightning. And if liquidity is really the network effect that Lynn believes it to be, and I I agree with her, I think it is the liquidity that it is the network effect that people believe it to be, then that's all happening on Ethereum. That's just, that is a bear case for Lightning. People aren't going to trade over from Ethereum to Bitcoin and open, they're they're not going to do it unless they're already there and unless there's already things to pay for there and you know, the network effect ravels and unravels uh, as fast. And so the fact that there is no addressing of the fact that the main, one of the main criticisms is that all of this activity is happening in the Ethereum ecosystem 
is a problem in my mind. And yes, she addresses the fact that there are merchants and Cash App and Strike and all kinds of things like that. But at its core, the Ethereum ecosystem is just massively, massively, massively more active than the Bitcoin one. And I think that deserves some kind of addressing here. How does this all play out if I had to guess? And that's kind of how I'm, I'm guessing with, with my own personal uh, coins is really, I think this is a dual world. I know in the beginning of the article, Lynn talks about Gresham's Law, where basically good money is chased out by bad money. And at the end of the day, the good money is what sucks in the liquidity because everyone wants to get rid of the bad money and, and hold on to the good money. And she makes that case around Bitcoin being that store of value. To my mind, that is true, but we live in a more complicated world, and it's not just a world of one currency, it's a world of several major currencies. At its core, at the back end, when, and this is something actually I changed my mind on, if you go back and listen to uh, episode one, uh, I made one case, now I'm going to make it the other case, but I think that's also okay to change your mind and sometimes to do it publicly, that's healthy for the debate, but what I think happens is when you have transaction costs that go down to zero because of technology. And that's really what's happening today. Today for me to, trans to, to swap from Ethereum into any other token, the, the transaction cost of doing it is, is A, going down, and B, it's being obfuscated from me and it's going into the back end. They're already DEX aggregators that check different exchanges, get the lowest rate and, and swap it for me. The same is true in my bank if I, if I used to only be able to swap money by uh, you know, going to an exchange at the airport and swapping and, and things like that. Today, Visa and MasterCard take care of that exchange swap for me and I don't even have to worry about it. Um, or I can just do it in my bank account pretty seamlessly. So that transaction cost, the friction, is getting obfuscated. And that means that, yes, people will um, trade out of the weaker currencies into the stronger currencies, and that will be their default because it's it's easier to do. And so you don't have to hold a lira if you can immediately trade it into a dollar. And in that sense, she's right. But also, there are other real reasons to hold other coins. And we are not in a world of one coin. Even in a, in a Bitcoin maxi world of only Bitcoin, there will still be other coins. And the idea of one coin being such a massive black hole that sucks in everything else just doesn't jive for me. I mean, even today, just because you have dollars doesn't mean you don't hold Starbucks reward rewards points. It doesn't mean you don't hold your, you know, United uh, frequent flyer miles. You hold all of them, not only because of the friction to trade into them, there's also that, but it's also because each coin can give you a certain amount of utility that you can't get by holding the other coin. And so I hold Ethereum because it gives me utility. I hold Bitcoin because it gives me a store of value. I don't swap from one into the other that often um, or ever, really. And that's because they both have a strong use case. And so even if I was using Lightning for micropayments, I would still be using Ethereum for DeFi and for other things that I can't do on Bitcoin. And in that sense, the liquidity begets liquidity. I think it's true up to a certain point. And a one-coin, one-chain future is not what I see in the cards. It definitely is a multi-chain future. It definitely is. There is a power law distribution where the top three or five ecosystems have the majority of the value. But there is a long tail of assets that have value, that have utility, uh, that give some kind of 
angle to the people who hold him. And because the internet, I think what it has made clear is that while the power law is true in the internet, the long tail is also super, super, super true. Um, what that means basically is you have the main publications, the main creators get the most of the eyeballs and of the financial reward, right? Like uh, the Kardashians have a bazillion uh, followers, but there are also a bazillion people who have a thousand fans and a thousand followers. Um, and that is what the internet promises. It promises that centralization, but also the diversity and finding your crowd. I mean, even Ethereum Audible, where I read niche uh, articles that are long form and in-depth, right? You would never think that in a world where people follow uh, ridiculous uh, TikTok videos, there are people who are interested in listening to an hour of in-depth rambling about crypto. But there are, and that's what's amazing um, about you guys, but also uh, guys and gals, but also about just crypto in general and, and the internet in general. And I think that that needs to be adapted for Gresham's law. Last, but definitely not least, is the issue of privacy. And here is where I think, uh, as a community, we need to be rethinking how we think about privacy, because Lightning um, has done it much better than a lot of uh, the Ethereum ecosystem, as we can see in the OFAC sanctions. But also there are problems with Lightning. There are actually a lot of papers written on the problem in Lightning privacy. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be adopting it because it's already better than what exists today. And just the ability to open a peer-to-peer -peer payment transaction channel is already incredibly valuable. But privacy really has to be front and center because without privacy, without that freedom to transact, there are no other freedoms. And we have to kind of suck it up and take the, the bad actors with, with the good actors because that's what preserves kind of Western society as it is. It's the freedom to transact. So overall, I think this is a fantastic, fantastic read. I'm very glad that you've stuck through all three of them. Next week, I'm going to be taking some time off for the end of the summer. We're going to get back into some fantastic reads come September.